You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends. Over the course of my life, I have consumed a lot of information regarding self-help, personal growth, leadership, uh, motivation, inspiration. I have no idea how many books I've read on that subject and those subjects. I don't even know how many podcasts I've listened to, but a lot. And it's always been in an effort to improve what I do, primarily to improve the strengths that I have, because the weaknesses, I can't do a lot about them, generally speaking, but I can improve my strengths. And I think this is a time in the history of our country where consuming that type of information for personal improvement and motivation, inspiration, critically important because we have so much barking, so much nonsense. Uh, we have 24-7 news from the, what we used to call the TV to now what we call our phone, and we just take too much time, me included sometimes, and it can be distracting and not in a good way. Well, I don't know that I've had a guest that has authored a book that has all of that in there. And it was such a pleasure to read it. This individual that I'm about to introduce, it's an author, freelance writer, public speaker, a soul coach, and she does all of that on top of her critically important professional career in communications and public relations. And we'll talk about that as well. It's a pleasure and an honor to have on Mike Seminary and Friends today, Lisa Gullen Nelson. Good morning, Lisa. It's great to see you. How are you? Well, thank you for having me on. I am doing very well. I'm happy to be here and chat with you today. Thank you for writing your book. <laughs> and because it was really a pleasure uh, reading it and consuming the information. Folks, by the way, it's it's 14 quick chapters full of really important information. And the name of the book, I'm going to read the title because sometimes I forget, and it's really important. You have permission to live your heart's desire. You have permission to live your heart's desire. Lisa, by the way, I should spell that, G-U-L-L-A-N-D Nelson. But before we get to your book, I'd really like to talk a little bit about your career sure. and what you do in the, the, the footprint of the Fargo-Moorhead area. You're part of an organization that uh, one could argue it's maybe one of the most important when it comes to coordinating economic development activity. You, you're part of an ecosystem that is second to none when it comes to young, really smart, gifted entrepreneurs. And you're right in the middle of it as the person that is the chief communication officer for the Greater Fargo-Moorhead Economic Development Corporation. How long have you been doing that? And what led you to that role? 
Oh, gosh. Um, so I've been in economic development work for about 14 years. I've been at the EDC um, and I, I love it, by the way. And I agree with everything you said. We feel like it's so important. Uh, we have a small team who are all really passionate about what we do and have a lot of fun with it um, and work really hard at it. I actually went to school for um, broadcast journalism. So I was in uh, television for about five years, um, first at WDAZ in Grand Forks when it was a thing. It's no longer um, <laughs> as part of the home team. And then I came to KBRR, Fox News, for a couple of years. And it was actually, um, I was doing um, the story on Drew Shadeen. Um, and I was up in Grand Forks. And it was um, obviously a horrific story, but also such a unique experience because I'd never done a story where all the networks were there. Everyone was covering that story. So you took the Grand Forks Police Department station where we did our um, lives or our interviews with the police, you know, it was usually obviously plenty of room for the three or four cameras. And this was like, everyone was stacked up the stairs. Um, and I remember talking to the network reporter from, from Fox and he was there young um, and he was talking about his three or four month old baby at home. And I realized at that moment, like that was the, the height of the career that I wanted, right? Like that was what I was gonna get to. I was gonna be in some town somewhere covering some story for who knows how long um, and away from my family. And I thought, is this what I actually want? Um, and so at that point, uh, I needed to like figure something else out. But that had been my whole like growing up. All I wanted to do was journalism. Like I didn't have a second plan. And so I had started to do um, really kind of informational interviews with a ton of people trying to figure out now what. Um, and so at that time, I decided I just wanted to work for a good company. I didn't care what I did. And so I started interviewing with good companies. So I ended up at NDSU at the Career Center, which was a mm. great experience. Love NDSU, um, great organization to work for. I learned a lot and you know made a lot of great connections. And um, but it being a career specialist just it wasn't quite what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I would find myself navigating towards trying to write or market or you know do the things that that I love. And so then I thought, well, maybe I can actually find a job that I love at a company I love. And so um, interestingly enough, this, I applied for the job at the EDC um, and they um, barely interviewed me at all. <laughs> I almost started asking myself questions because I came from the career center. And so I knew how to ask questions and how to do an interview. Um, and at one point the current president was like, well, can you write? And I'm like, mm, I think so. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> And so uh, I started there and, you know, was able to evolve kind of with the organization. It was, it's been really fascinating. We've had several leaders kind of come and go, but I've learned so much from each one of them. Um, and from the board, um, the leaders that we've had um, supporting the organization, it's just been, it's been fascinating. And, you know, it's a lot of fun to see, um, you know, oftentimes when we interview people coming in, we'll say, you know, you'll spend a lot of time working on things. You might not really see the dial move. You know, it's not like being a reporter where at the end of the day, you have what we call the package, right? You have a story. It's either good or it's not, but it's finished. You you have something from the day, right? Um, and the next day you start over, we're at the EDC and in economic development, it's really just, you have to trust this long-term 
um, you know, that you're, you're pushing something. And it's really helped um, Joe Raso, our current president, is really, really data driven. And so it's been fun having him come in because we can use the data to really say, okay, here's what's working. You know, here's how we push in this other area and here's how we're helping companies. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's been a great experience. And again, critically important organization. And I'll move off of this in just a second. Economic development opportunities, when they're looking for a place to land or a new place to expand to, it's a very competitive environment. And if you don't have an organization in your community that that's pretty much their singular focus, and then have the support of leadership in the community, in this case, communities, a lot of times those places will go somewhere else, and it's really hard to get them back. And as someone that has been involved in this some time, I can tell you that the organization you're part of and your role really, really important. One other thing, you mentioned Drew Shadeen. I have a friend that has an, a company called Pretty, as in good looking, Pretty Loaded. And it's about teaching people situational awareness. They do that individually. They do it with communities. She does it. Her name is Beth Warford. She does it with huge corporations, government entities. Our daughter is in a video on their website replicating the Drew Shadeen oh. case incident. I bring it up because stop walking around in public, especially if you're by yourself with your cell phone. There just are people out there that have maybe not the best intentions. And it's been watched about 300 million times. It's a very powerful video. So I, I can only on the surface relate to your job covering that, by the way. <clears throat> so you have this incredible career, keeps you busy. What made you decide, I'm gonna add, before we get to the book, what I'm gonna add all this other stuff on top of what I'm doing. What drove you to do that? Yeah, um, you know, gosh, it's just, sometimes you just start to walk your path and pick up extra stones, I guess, is the easiest way to say it. Um, you know, it's it's passion driven. Um, and it's really more been about me answering my own questions and then kind of sharing what I discover. Um, you know, I think, I guess, I don't know if I became a reporter because I'm curious or I became curious because I'm a reporter, but either way, um, it stuck with me. And so I tend to ask questions and, you know, and observe things um, no matter what I'm doing. And so I think that's just led to the rest of my life and <laughs> blood into everything. Um, but you know, the experiences in my life and, you know, this kind of does um, lead into the book, I suppose, but uh, several years ago, I, I lost both my parents um, to cancer. And 
first, my mother, um, she had been battling cancer for quite a few years. Uh, it was uterine cancer that metastasized after about five years to her lungs. Um, then after that, it really metastasized to her brain, which is, um, and it might be more common now, but it was very unusual. So the doctors really didn't know how to handle it. Um, and it was this unique experience where um, in the end, I actually it felt like we flipped roles. Uh, she had taken me to the doctor a lot when I was sick um, and here I was taking her, but in the middle of that, between her, between it being lung cancer and, and brain cancer, my dad got sick and he had cancer, lung cancer, but his lasted like almost literally a month. So he went in, they wanted to keep him for a couple days of observation they realized he had um, had lung cancer and then they sent him to Mayo. And so that was mid-June when he went in and mid-July he passed away. Um, and so after he passed away, then I was helping my mom or we were helping my mom sell the farm and you know auction things off. And so it was just, it was one thing after the other and um, in my life, sometimes I've had where my eye will twitch and I didn't really realize why that was until this all happened and my eye twitched consistently for months. Um, and I realized obviously it's stress, right? Um, and so after my dad passed away, then my mom, um, her cancer came back. And like I said, I ended up taking her to the hospital quite a bit. We had to put her in a nursing home um, because it presented like almost like a stroke. So one side of her body was um, not functioning at all. And it was, I didn't have kids at the time, thankfully, um, because of course she didn't want to be at the nursing home. So Andy, my husband and I ended up taking her out all the time. Um, and I remember one time saying, you know, mom, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it tomorrow night. And I could see her whole body just, you know, sag. Um, I've never felt so guilty. Um, and then they were doing chemo and radiation um, to try to take care of it. But as soon as they stopped, it just like, it was like a wildfire. Um, and then that was it. So then that following May, my mother, mother passed away. And um, that was the first time, you know, you'd, I'd had grandparents die, but like nothing, nothing serious. And so all of a sudden I was faced with death in a way that was very real and I was terrified. And so, um, I needed to understand it. I needed to know what I was dealing with because clearly death was not going to, I was not going to escape it. And so I started, um, I took, um, sociology of religion and sociology of death and dying and world religions like I needed to understand this and so all of those questions started to lead to more questions and, and more questions and I started to uncover all of these things and I really believe that at that point I entered this new spiritual college um and I have had a strong faith my whole life I grew up Lutheran in the ELCA church um I I we were members of Bethlehem or Pastor Tim Stoa is probably one of my favorite people in the world. He's retired now, but none of those things really had answered any of those questions that I had, right? Any of those fears necessarily. Um, and so that's kind of how I got started is I just, I needed to answer those questions and it started to just evolve into all of these other, um, you know, things that I started to learn. And I started to write them down. <laughs> mm. 
Chapter four of your book. Sorry about your parents, by the way, that life cycle thing. I know it's a life cycle thing, but I hate it. Yeah. Is about a farm girl and, and life lessons. I was, I was drawn to all your chapters, but particularly that one, because I firmly believe what arguably the most important for all of us entrepreneurs are farmers. (laughs) If we don't have farmers, I'm not eating much. (laughs) That's just the way it is. We don't have farmers and ranchers. When I go hunting and fishing and hornbockers, there's, there's nothing there for me. And I've, and they deal with more uncontrollable variables than maybe any other entrepreneur. And I've always had this profound and deep appreciation for them, but particularly the kids that they raise. Because it seems to me there's a different level of curiosity because of you're, you're on the farm, um, which is... Dramatically different than being a city kid like I am. How did that impact how you dealt with the the loss of your parents, but then also a driver to your curiosity in your career and then ultimately writing the book? Hmm, That's a really good question. Um, You know, in in one way, I would say... um, and, and there was a lot of values that my parents instilled in me that we, we you know, you learn growing up on a farm, but it's also, I feel like very grounding. I spent a lot of time outside. I had um, an obnoxious amount of cats. I don't know, it sounds like a weird problem, but like the, I had a lot of cats. We took care of them and stuff. Um, you know, we could have maybe gotten them fixed, but that's again, another podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then a couple of dogs. And, you know, I spent so much time outside daydreaming and making things up. And, you know, I think that in and of itself helps someone to learn to become curious, right? When you're when you're creating all the time. Um, but I think, you know, it, whether you're on a farm or in town, there is um, something very important about being out in nature um, finding ways to ground yourself um, with the earth. Um, and, you know, I think, like you said, farmers know that very well. We're we're part of this planet. We came from the planet, like literally. Um, and so to think we're separate from it, I think is um, a mistake. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, um, there was a lot of foundational things, I think, that came mm. from from growing up on a farm and um, being part of that. The, the primary audience, target audience for your book are women. Um, that being said, listeners, please understand, th- this book is for everyone. It is uh, full of great information. I mean, for example, the, the, the first chapter is you deserve to be happy. And I run into a lot of people that don't seem to be very happy. And gender aside, I mean, just, and, there, and maybe because the way I opened up the podcast, there's all this noise and barking and 
divisiveness and borderline hatred, maybe, uh, wars, <laughs> it goes on and on, that can, you know, derail you from your pursuit of happiness. Why did you start the book, which, and I'm, I'm glad you did, with that chapter? Yeah, um, yeah, because I think that, like you said, I mean, there's, it is keeping us from such a big life. So I feel like, and yes, I did write it for women, and actually I wrote it for myself. Um, and I think, you know, if you don't, if, if you don't focus on, on someone, you're speaking to no one. But at the same time, like you said, I think there is a lot of value for anyone in this book. Um, but speaking of happiness in particular, I think that it's important because none of us have nearly enough compassion um, and not even for other people, but of course for other people, but for ourselves. Um, I think too often we work so hard to fit ourselves in these tiny boxes of expectations of who we should be, of what we should care about, of what matters. And the boxes are so small that it doesn't leave any room for us to just be, just to be happy. Um, and I think if we could be just focusing a little bit more on compassion for ourselves and what that looks like. So saying to ourselves, what does make me happy? You know, do I really need to do all of these things? Does it make me happy or is it who I think I'm expected to be? And those are two very different things. And I think many of us spend so much time focused on the expectations of ourselves, of who we think we should be for others or how we can make others happy that we don't that we, we stray too far away from our own happiness. And I believe that if we can focus just on our own happiness, not to be selfish, um, but if we can focus on our own happiness, we'll actually be able to serve more for others. Mm. We'll actually be more, um, more compassionate and, and the box will fall away and we'll find who we truly are. And, you know, that, that leads into talking about energy because everything is energy. I think we know that on a basic scientific level, but what does that mean? And again, like curiosity, are we asking these questions and why should we ask these questions so that we can understand that if everything is energy, if we start to focus on our own happiness, we kind of clean our energy up and then we can be more of a beacon. So if my energy is interacting with yours and I'm unhappy, um, I have all of this junk that will kind of go over to you, right? Like this matters, how we are matters, um, how we feel about ourselves, um, what we're focused on, you know, the words we use to talk to ourselves, uh, that little voice inside our heads that matters. And so, um, yeah, I just think that, that if everybody could just focus on adding a sliver more happiness and more compassion to themselves, um, the world would be so much different. I, I, I liken it to, and I, I appreciate you bringing up and talking about self-help at the beginning, because we do focus a lot on, on self-help. And I think that while that's really important, it's, it's kind of a, we have to be careful 
because I think we all come in, we're all perfect. We are all beautiful, wonderful. And I think of all of us like a lighthouse. We're all a lighthouse. Um, we have this light inside of us, but oftentimes because of the experiences that we have growing up and, you know, we interact with well-intentioned adults who are trying to take care of us and keep us safe, but it puts us in that box that I mentioned. And so all those experiences, all that programming start to kind of dull the glass around our lighthouse. And working through some of this health, self-help, all these books, all this stuff um, is really intended to just start to uncover the, the dust, right? To, to wipe off the, the grime and the grease and the dirt so that we can actually shine the light that we have inside of us um, because we all have it. Um, and once we do that, once we can uncover some of that stuff, we can be a lighthouse for others. Mm. I really like that analogy. And it really tees up my next question perfectly. And it's about chapter six. Again, folks, I'm not going to go into all the detail because what you need to do is buy the book. And we'll get to that shortly. Taking inventory, focusing on your strengths. I almost got a little teary-eyed because my dad was the first person to tell me, son, on a regular basis, you have to take inventory, self-inventory. And when you do that, make sure you identify what your strengths are you already know what your shortcomings are, generally speaking, and sometimes you can't do a lot about them. So focus on ways to improve those strengths. So my question, Lisa, is what what motivated you to write that chapter? And uh, yeah, I'm going to use that question. What motivated you to write that chapter? And thank you for doing it, by the way. Yeah, um, you know. I think we spend a lot of time trying to fix ourselves and I just don't always think that that's helpful. It's not that we shouldn't try to gain new experiences and gain new skill sets, but what is it that you're passionate about? What is it that you love and let that drive you, you know, let that become kind of a, a snowball rolling down the hill um, and pick up speed and, and get bigger and bigger and bigger um, because that's what the world needs. It needs, us just falling into the things that we're passionate about. And I think oftentimes, you know, we can kind of get complacent or we get busy, right? We're, we're in the grind, so to speak. We're on the hamster's wheel and we forget what it is that we are passionate about. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but then giving ourselves permission to just quiet a little bit and remember what it is that we love. And, and sometimes, um, you know, we might use our intuition to find something that we want to do. And it might not even feel like it has anything to do with whatever it is we're passionate about. But oftentimes, it winds us into the things that we really are meant to do. And, you know, if you're if you're a golfer, right, you're really good at golfing, you're a pro, you're not going to spend your time trying to play basketball, right? I mean, and so 
if we can focus on the things that we're really passionate about, what we're really good at, then then we can really we can become the pro we're meant to be, uh, and and we can give that to the world. Um, yeah. I like how you phrase that. You, you, and I don't know if this is through the coaching that you do in the public. We're going to talk about public speaking in a little bit, by the way, because most people would rather die than be forced <laughs> to publicly speak, which I've never understood. One's pretty permanent. The other, you're going to get over it if you don't do it very well. There's no recovery from the other. Focusing on on joy, you, here's how you said it: focus on joy and ban complaining. Hallelujah! That when I read that, I said that has to be some almost everyone's mantra. <laughs> what drove you to 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 write that? I just loved it. Um, you know it's really easy to get stuck on the complaints that we have to just get in that. And it, it brings down our vibration. We become, we align with what we focus on. So if you want to align with more things that you don't like, that the things you want to complain about, then go ahead. But that's what you will get. You will get what you focus on. Um, so if you want more joy, if you want more peace, Focus on the things in your life that are joyful and peaceful and happy or whatever it is that you want. Focus on what you want. Um, because back to energy, uh, it all matters where our mind goes. And, you know, you know, sometimes we, we beat ourselves up like, I can't believe I thought that or I can't believe I said that. But those are just words. They're just thoughts. You can just back up a little bit and and say, do does that thought agree with me? Do I it doesn't no okay right like just put it on a little bubble and let it float away it's fine and then you know and it's practice right everything we do if we want to get better at it we practice so if you find yourself complaining and you don't want to you don't want to align with that um then then refocus practice do something different if we want change in our life we have to make a few changes right and so if we if we don't want negativity then let's and, and what, as I say that, um, it doesn't mean don't deal with the things that are that are impacting you in a negative way. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't feel because those are different, right? Complaining about stuff and sitting in something and not letting it go is much different than, than feeling. If I have something happen, um, and I'm angry. So for example, I was just at an event where I was speaking and um, some a woman, um, she raised her hand and she said that she had an experience where her daughter was murdered and people were telling her to forgive the person who killed her daughter. And I can like feel like all the conflict, right? We're told that we're supposed to forgive. And, and part of it, I feel like, you know, sometimes... Uh, as a society, we want to just move past something. We don't want, we want it to be normal again. We want everybody to be okay. Um, and I told her, I said, you know, you don't have to forgive him yet. I said, and I, you have permission to feel. 
You have permission to feel all the things you feel. There is anger in there that is deserved. And, you know, our emotions are important. They're a way that we, that are, they're communicating with us. I said, you can be as angry as you want, but you don't need to hold on to it forever, right? It's, it's not something that you need to carry with you, but if we can feel those things, really, really feel them, let them speak to us, and then we can release them. That is how we move through um, the experiences that are hard and painful, but so that we can get to the point where, you know, we can just experience joy. And I will say, um, I'm starting to really believe that for some of us, um, when we're not used to it, joy can actually be uncomfortable. Too much joy can actually be a little bit painful. And so we have to work our way into it. And and that's okay. Um, and then too, I would say that this life is a journey and we're practicing and learning and it's okay. We're never going to get it all right. We're not meant to, we're just meant to experience it. And, you know, to, to, to walk through this journey, like a trail, right? Where we're picking up a rock and seeing what's underneath it. Maybe we want to put the rock back. We want to keep it, you know, but we're learning from it and it's, it's benign. It's just an experience. Um, and, and we can, we can use it. And like I said, let it move through us and learn from it. So I was going to ask you a question about public speaking, but I'm going to defer that for a moment because of what you just shared. Here's what I was hearing. I think, I think, I don't know you and I don't know the practice. I think I was just hearing Lisa, the soul coach. Um, I wasn't familiar with that um, vocation, profession, until I started reading your book. Help me understand what that is and where and how you learned it and why you're incorporating it into, I don't want to say consulting, maybe that's the wrong phrase, I don't know, but the other things that you do on top of this already busy professional career that you have. Yeah, so it's taken me a while to be able to explain what it is I do because it is sort of, you know, oftentimes I'm just sitting with someone saying, how are you? And then what's going on? And they start talking and then we kind of get into it, right? Um, but I really feel like uh, intuitively, we I connect with your soul. So it's not really that I'm coaching your soul because your soul doesn't need to be coached. So um, it's your soul saying, hey, here are some things, right? And, and so what happens is I might ask you, how are things going? What's going on? You'll say something. Um, and then I might ask you to just sit with that in your body and say, where do you feel that in your body? And it's amazing because you'll say, oh, I feel it here. I'm like, okay, well, we'll sit with that, clear your mind and what memory comes up. And you might have a memory that you had no idea that was something that was like, okay, I'm having this issue. And then this random memory from when you're 13 comes up, but it's relevant. And so you start talking about it and then you start clearing it. You might start crying, right? Um, you might get angry. And then there's some things that we can do, tools we can use, whether it's writing a letter or you know, doing various things that can help you move through that 
basically that blocked emotion. Um, and that's, tr that might trigger you, right? So if there's, oh gosh, maybe every time somebody says a certain thing to you, you just get really angry, like, like angry in a way that doesn't actually make sense. That's a trigger. That's something that your body, your soul is saying, hey, look at me, check engine lights on. <laughs> Let's take this in and get some work done on it um, so that we don't have to replay that event because they're, it's trying to heal you, right? That's what we're here for. This is a journey uh, for our soul. Our soul is here to experience things. Um, and and so, so, yeah, that's what I do when I'm, when I'm coaching. Um, and, and it could be really more like, here's what I want to do. Um, you know, I want to run the Boston Marathon. Great. What can we do to start to get you on that path, right? So there's a lot of different ways to help someone um, to work through some of those things. But that's kind of, that's kind of what it looks like. I hope that makes sense. It did. Thank you. So finally, back to public speaking, something both of us have a passion for, uh -huh. but not everyone does. And I also understand there are some people just, they're, they're just never going to do it. You may have to force them, but they're never going to do it. But I fundamentally believe most of us, it's a skill we should work on and to develop. And I'll share my personal reasons later. Why did you include it in the book? And thank you for doing it, because I just think it it's really important for many, many people. Well, for me, I, I feel like um, it just comes down to that's how we share these messages that are so important. Um, and it's interesting when I was at DAZ, I remember the anchor, cause then I was, I was so nervous when I did live shots, I would, um, I would actually like psych myself out. And so even though I'd have this stuff memorized, like then I would just get all nervous and I couldn't remember. And it was just, they were terrible. Um, and it was such a short time that you, you can't really get into the, the flow of it. Um, and I remember talking to the anchor at the time, and she said that she used to be so nervous to anchor newscasts until the flood happened in Grand Forks. Mm. And they would spend all this time, you know, either on the news or I don't know if they had longer newscasts, I can't remember. But basically they would do things like, hey, you know, Sally, so-and-so, uh, your mother wants you to know she's okay. Uh, and they would have these messages. Like that's a lot of what they did during that time. And she realized how important that was for people and what a service that they were doing. And then she realized that that's what she was doing as an anchor. She was helping people. And so when she could focus more on how these messages were helping everyone, she was providing information, even just in a general newscast. Um, I think that for someone who is nervous about public speaking, but who wants to do it, I mean, obviously we don't all need to, um, but for the for someone looking at that path, I think it's helpful to remember that that your message is important for other people. And so you have to, to use it um, because someone needs to hear you um, and you need it to be loud enough for the person in the back of the room. And that's kind mm -hmm. of a metaphor. But but you need to be willing. And I have to tell myself that, too, you know, because oftentimes, you know, I'll try to figure out a, a I don't want to say a cadence, but like, how do I share this information? What's important and how, 
how do I share it? Where do I go for it? You know, I did a couple Facebook lives. I would have like once a week and I was like, is anybody even listening to this? And then uh, I, so I quit <laughs> doing it. Um, and then I was, it was, we were in DL at a restaurant and somebody was like, oh my gosh, I loved your messages on Facebook. Um, I found them so helpful. And, you know, so here there were people that out there listening. I just didn't know it yet. And, and I get that people won't like or comment on my Facebook posts, but they'll tell me later. I love the things that you share because it makes me think about stuff. And I'm like, seriously, well, where are you? Why don't you like my, give me some feedback online. But, but also I think um, because of some of the stuff that I share, it's a little bit, I don't want to say edgy, but it pushes the edge of some people's boundaries. Um, they're not comfortable being exposed in that way. And so um, I try to remember that like, okay, this isn't something everybody's comfortable acknowledging, but it's important to them. Yeah. Cadence, you're right. Cadence is important. And to prove that to yourselves, folks, the best pastors, typically, they have this cadence that they use in the delivery of their message that pulls people in. And almost every good public speaker, almost every good keynote speaker, and I don't mean to be dismissive of others, they have this cadence. Some have it naturally, some practice it, but it's really, really, really important. So are you a hired guy? Are you a for hire keynote speaker? Yes, definitely. And uh, pay me or not, I don't really care. I probably shouldn't say that. But, um, you know, I just I love to to talk about this because, again, I just I think it's so important. And um, you just never know who is going to hear something that really helps drive them to a decision, a path. Um, and not to sound dramatic, but that could change the world. Right. I mean, yep. We're all pebbles moving the dirt around in the soil, uncovering seeds that can grow into some beautiful things. And so, um, like you said before, you know, there's so much um, fear and negativity that it's hard to remember. Some of us are out there loving the world and sharing good things and doing things that are, are you know, driven by our passion and kindness. And there's a lot more of us than, than not. And I think it's important to remember that and to give ourselves permission <laughs> to just do what we love and to talk about it. Mm. Your website is passion to pen. Let, not, the, not the number, passion to pen, P-A-S-S-I-O-N-T-O-P-E-N.com. If someone wanted to reach out to you uh, for a variety of things. That's the best way to reach you through your website. Yeah. Yep. Back to public speaking for one other thing. You help organize. I'm, I'm arguably one of the most important public speaking venues, along with Greg Tavine, I think. Um, one Million Cups is now morphed and grown into something else, Startup Brew, that was 
a home, not a home run, a grand slam. <laughs> that provided a venue for those that wanted to learn, wanted to be informed, wanted to connect and network. One of the greatest venues, maybe in the history of Fargo and it still exists. How did that happen? Ah, yes. And you know that, you know, back to economic development in our organization, I think that is one of the the, the coolest things about our organization is that we are willing to see where there's gaps, where there are needs, and and the the board and the leadership has always been willing to say yes, we'll try it, we'll do it, we'll support the skills and technology center uh, or the research and tech park, we'll help build. Yeah, I mean they started off right um, with the. Uh, some leaders saying, hey, we need an industrial park. Like that's how we started many years ago. And so, um, yes, and I'm not currently involved with Startup Brew anymore other than attending once in a while. But um, how it started was Greg Tavine meeting me for coffee with someone else. And he's like, hey, there's this thing I've learned about. It's called One Million Cups. Take a look, Google it. Um, and I want to try it. And, and so I'm like, okay, I had no idea. I'm like, what is this? And so I'm trying to understand it. You know, I'm, I'm researching it. I'm like, okay. And so we decided we were going to do it for four weeks. We were going to pilot it, not knowing um, what it was going to be or if there was going to be any interest. And so I was mainly like the social media person. So I started up our our Twitter account. I thought we would start there. And I sent emails out saying, you know, what was up, upcoming uh, after four weeks, well, not even, it was, by the time we got to week four, we're like, okay, this is something people like. Uh, we were at the Plains Art Museum at the time and quickly realized we were outgrowing the space there. So we were at the library, but we could only reserve that for, um, I don't know, a couple weeks at a time or something. Um, and we were all growing the space there. And we were, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, we are victims of our success here. What is happening? Um, and then um, and then we moved um, spaces again. And and yeah, it just it just took off. I mean, I would do a lot of tweeting during the event. Um, our Twitter account exploded. Um, it just, you know, and I think so one of the other volunteers and I um John Walters ended up every year um, Kaufman Foundation brings in folks, um, volunteers uh, to Kansas City to talk about One Million Cups, what is working, what's not, you know, those kinds of things. And just to meet them, it was, it's really, it's fun. They're an awesome organization. Um, and so on our way there, we were like, okay, okay. So let's just, you know, we'll be ready for all the insults and the, you know, the mockery of Fargo. Um, and so we were ready for that. We got there and like, what are you guys doing in Fargo? And we're like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> Is this an insult? Is this a question? They were like, oh my gosh, it's so impressive. And everybody was just like, yeah, all asking us. No one had done what we did really, at least our experience. No one had done what we were doing in Fargo. Um, some organizations, the entrepreneurs wouldn't show up. Um, some, you know, partners wouldn't show up, you know, so they, they all had these issues that we just didn't seem to have here in our Metro because people show up for each other. They help out, you know, entrepreneurs were, are really willing to share their story, to get into the details. 
Um, they're not worried about someone coming to steal their idea or anything like that. And so we just, we have such a special magical place um, that it's, it's easy to take for granted what we have going on in the region and, and in general, even beyond, um, you know, 1 million cups. And it's so helpful. And I think, um, you know, at the end of every uh, startup brew, they say, how can the community help you? Um, it's it's just been fascinating. It's fascinating to watch companies who go through that. And then if they follow up on all the tips and the help that they get, um, you know, they can they can grow really fast. But also speaking about our community in general. So we have, we work with, uh, when you talk about attraction, um, we work with some, uh, a group of, of individuals, they're called site selectors. So they're almost like a commercial realtor, but for a company, let's say that a, a company is, they're looking to expand into a new market. They have these certain requirements. A site selector is going to say, okay, looking at the globe, looking at the United States, here are some possible locations. They're going to get RFPs from those locations, and they're going to basically try to to narrow the list down, right? So our job as an EDC is to stay on the list as long as we can until they've moved into our location. Um, and so we've worked with a, a site selector who's also a consultant and hadn't who hadn't been in the market before. And as soon as he walked, or as soon as he came, he wasn't here for probably more than five minutes when he realized what we have here and he was blown away. And he said, you know, basically you guys are punching way above your weight class. So I think we forget <laughs> what we have here in in the region in terms of just quality of life, in terms of the businesses, the diversity of businesses we have based on our population is, is really impressive. And it's helped us, um, you know, stay really successful and, and, you know, kind of keep our economic vitality, even when there have been dips um, in the economy. So yeah, it's an exciting place to be. I have a philosophy about why the Fargo-Moorhead metro area is the way it is. And it is unique. There's no two ways about it. A couple things. One, we're an agrarian community. Very, very rural. And 150, 200 years ago, when there weren't any trees, and you were working the land, and it was dry, or there was a blizzard. Even if your neighbor didn't like you much, they had your back. So that's part of our history. Yeah. Second, the way this footprint has dealt with disasters, going all the way to back to the historic fire of 1893, and how quickly they rebuilt and recovered, and people would come in from Castleton, for example. Now, today, that doesn't sound like much, but in 1893, for somebody coming to Castle, and that was a big, big deal. The floods, the blizzards, and they never go away. They're always going to be here. But you always were helping your neighbor rebuild. You were having their back. And maybe in terms of the economic development footprint, Maybe the thing, and, and I observed this. I grew up here, was away for almost 38 years, came back, and I I learned this as I observed. Long ago, leaders of Fargo-Moorhead, particularly Fargo, they made the decision. When we have something in front of us, 
in terms of art of the long view, the future for the generations to follow, they would decide to make what's the best business decision to make and then deal with the political ramifications of it after. Because there always are political ramifications, unfortunately, with those kinds of decisions. That's just the way life is. Not every community does that. They decide to try to deal with the politics of it first, and all of a sudden you're during the headlights and there's this divisiveness. And so the people that were on the shoulders of, they had incredible wisdom and foresight, and I think that continues to this day. And you have to look no further than the organization that you're a part of, what was Million Cups, now Startup uh, Brew, the vibrant... Uh, young entrepreneurial, I shouldn't be, uh, let's just call it the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Most of them are young. <laughs> is second to none. Yes. And that is something so, so special. Let me ask you, we're getting kind of close here to, I'm going to ask you a couple of big, big, big questions. Thank you for addressing what you or I or anybody else really can control. Um, I've spent too much time in my life fretting over things. There's, they have absolutely zero control, none. Why did you write that? Oh, good question. I don't remember it. All. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because you're right. Like we, there are so many things that we can't control so many things happening out there that are just too big for us. And we don't need to even worry about them. Um, and, you know, sort of like complaining, we can get stuck in a big rut of, of worrying about things that don't matter. Um, and that is, it can be a way to control. So, we focus on those things and we don't have to live our life. We don't have to take ownership of what would really make us happy. And that's kind of an easy out. It's it's similar to, right? Like you talked about all the distractions and everything. Um, but if we can let go of the things that we can't control and, and be curious about what those things are, can I control this or not? No. Mm. Okay. What can I control? My reaction to it, how it affects my day or what else I focus on. And so, yeah, I just, I think it's, it's just, it's, it seems so small sometimes, but it's so huge. It really, really is just being aware. Seems appropriate to ask this question before I ask the final one. Again, folks, passion to pen.com for her book, more information, how to reach out to her for, uh, soul coaching and keynote speaking opportunities. It seems like what you just said, Lisa, is a natural segue to you addressed finding balance. And folks, I didn't add to her resume of things she's involved with. She got a family too. <laughs> how how are you? Because you have a very very busy life professionally family life, your your kids are very, very active, your husband's very, very active. How do you find balance that makes it work for you? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, that's a good question. Um, we all find balance, I think, in different ways, and it depends on you know who we are. So for me, uh, I love to read. Um, I do love to meditate, um, and you know, saying no to some things uh, is super helpful in general when you're trying to find balance. I think again, it goes back to what I was saying before, like you know, we try to fit into this tiny box of expectations. And so we say yes to things that don't fill us up. And we need to say no more often. And so I found myself saying no to some things that just don't work or I don't say yes to them. And I think that's really important to give ourselves permission to just peel away some of the layers that aren't working. We can't be who we're meant to be if we are drained. Mm -hmm. And so if hosting that party that you feel like that you do just because you're supposed to doesn't work for you, then just stop hosting it. Like you don't have to do that or do it a different way. You know, you don't have to be on that board um, if it doesn't fill you up. I, you know, I, when I was involved in church, we had this fellowship board that I was on and we would plan these monthly events and I, we didn't want to go to them. We didn't really want to do them. <laughs> Nobody else really wanted to go. I was like, but you just did it because that was what was done. And finally, I'm like, what would actually like, you know, like kind of like a, what would Jesus do? Right. Um, and I was like, well, does this actually speak to like who we are as a church and, you know, as an organization or whatever, as a people? Um and so I was like, what if we could do something else? And so we, we ended up, and I think they still do it, um, going to uh, the food bank and volunteering one of the months, right? Like that felt more in line with how we could kind of enjoy our fellowship, but also speak to the mission of Jesus. Um, and and then you, we had people sign up, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it, it it, it matched. So I think it, again, it goes back to being curious. Like, how do I find balance? Does this feel like balance to me? Am I exhausted? Am I mad? Am I angry? Those are, you know, anger is, again, it's an emotion that's speaking to us. It's saying, I am not in alignment with who I am. I am not in alignment with my soul. And so how can I, how can I rebalance? How can I find that alignment um, and we think people are going to be so disappointed, right? That we don't do this thing anymore. Don't give whatever. And they won't be, I mean, who doesn't want, who doesn't want others to be happy? Like, would you ever say, oh my gosh, how dare you take care of yourself? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't you over giving and exhausting yourself to the point of like illness? <laughs> like nobody says that. And if they did, then maybe it's a good sign they don't belong in your life anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Dullen Nelson. The name of your book is You Have Permission to Live Your Heart's Desire. If you had a magic wand, you could wave over the heads of prospective readers What's the one thing you want them to know about your book and why they should buy it? You know, I, this book to me, um, I wrote it because, again, I, I had a lot of questions that I needed answered. 
I became more and more curious. And there were some things that I like being triggered, for example, or other things that I had let, read from other self-help books or had other experiences that weren't quite clicking. And I really felt like um, having the experience of them for me is a super helpful way to understand it. So having the concept and then having an example of how I've lived it um, and explaining it in kind of a simple way is helpful to me. I think it's a beginning, if this book. If you're interested in, in some of the concepts that we've talked about, um, I think you can read this book. And then at the end, I'll give you other books. And if you're still wanting more books, I could give you more and more, right? I think it's a door into all of this stuff. Um, and so I hope that that is what people get out of it. Um, but, but really, you know, whether it's this book or something else, um, some other book, I think it's about really being curious about saying what is true for me, not anyone else, but what's true for me now? What do I want to experience? What do I want to live and have in my life? And, and how do I move into that? And letting yourself be whoever you are, giving yourself permission, maybe, um, you know, your heart's desire is to be able to take a nap on a Saturday afternoon once in a while. Perfect. Start there. Ask those questions. How do I get to that? Right? Maybe it is the Boston Marathon. How do I get to that? Do I start drinking water? Do I go for walks? Do I join a running club? And it doesn't matter how we start, but once you start, and this is a uh, an invitation and maybe a warning, once you start opening yourself up, once you ask the universe, what's out there for me? How do I get to this? Trust me, the universe will answer. You have to be paying attention. Um, it you know might show up as synchronicities or happenstance, and it it will feel right again, even if it's not like I'm signing up for the marathon. It might be something completely different, um, but the universe will will guide you onto that path. You just have to take the inspired action, and it will mm -hmm. be inspired action. It'll feel right. It might be scary. But those two do not have to be mutually exclusive. It can be scary and feel right and be right. Living on the edge can be scary. And that's okay. That's where we're meant to be. Lisa, thank you so much for writing your book. Thank, thank you for everything that you your family, but particularly you. Thank you for everything you're doing, this incredible community. Thank you for taking time from your busy, very busy uh, life and schedule to join me. So here's the last thing I heard in my words, and I agree with Lisa 100%. If you're not stretching, learning, and growing, you're on the way to assuming room temperature, and that isn't good. And because that's just not the best way to participate in this wonderful thing called life. I hope that you and your family have an incredibly bountiful 2024 and again thank you for all that you do and thank you for joining me today lisa well thank you so much i'm grateful for the opportunity thank you, thank you.